bulletin. There's an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. I want you to find Matthew chapter 1. We're not going to read Matthew chapter 1 till the end of our time together, but we are going to build up to that as we think about the Christmas story. Corey already said it, Christmas is 11 days away. I was still talking during that point in the service, and so I did not see how many of you still have shopping to do. Show of hands, a lot of people. Some of you are done, some of you are not. Americans love to spend money at Christmas. Oh my. We love to spend money at Christmas. Really, we love to spend money on any holiday. Here's some numbers from recent years on money that Americans have spent and, uh, on different holidays. Halloween, we spend seven, the B is four billion. Seven billion dollars on Halloween. Father's Day, 10 billion. Easter, 14 billion. Valentine's Day, 18 billion. Mother's Day, 20. Thanksgiving, 30. And then you got to change the graph for Christmas. Look at this. 600. Actually, it's 603 is the projected estimate for what Americans will spend on Christmas this year. That's six times all the others added up together. We love to spend money at Christmas. Lots of interesting information about how much does each American family spend at Christmas. And if you're interested in that, you can find it. I'm not going to share it with you because if I shared the number, you may think, well, we're spending way too much for Christmas. Or you may think, we're not spending near enough for Christmas. It depends on who you're buying for and what you're buying and all sorts of things like that. But you can do the math, $600 billion divided up among how many families there are in the United States of America. And you can get a pretty good estimate of the cold, hard facts that we love to spend money at Christmas. My guess is that all of us here will spend a little bit of extra money at Christmas. And I hope that you just don't feel totally guilty for that. I hope you don't leave saying, oh, preacher just made us feel lousy because we bought Christmas presents this year. We're so rotten. Not the point at all. But I do want you to think about the fact that Christmas really is not about the gifts and the presents and all the money that we spend on all these different things. And in the series that we're working through during the month of December, we're talking about the story of Christmas. And we're reminding ourselves that in all the Christmas chaos, in all the Christmas activities and money and parties and gifts and stuff, we are the people who have true reason to celebrate. We have a story that is true, that is ancient, and that we have been sent to tell the world. And so the subtitle of this series is The Story of Christmas, What to Tell Your Kids, Parents, Friends, Neighbors, Coworkers, and Even Your Enemies About the Greatest Story Ever Told. And we're breaking it down into four parts. Last week we talked about part one. This is part of the Christmas story. God is holy. If you leave out part one, you miss the Christmas story completely. God is holy. And we looked at Isaiah 6, we looked at Revelation 4, and we talked about the idea that God is holy, holy, holy. And that when you're confronted as a sinful human, when you're confronted with this holy God, there's a double separation that exists between you and God. Separated one because of your creatureliness, because he is God and you are not God, separated two because of your sinfulness, he is holy, he is morally pure, he is 
perfectly sinless, and you and I are not. And so there's this double separation. And when you realize how you're separated from God, we talked about the fact that whether it's Isaiah in the Old Testament, John in the New Testament, the angels in heaven right now, fear is the only appropriate response. And the story of Christmas speaks into our lives. And the story of Christmas, Luke 2, is fear not. What you really ought to be doing is fearing. And yet the story of Christmas says, fear not, because God has come to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He's come to bridge the divide between you and him. And he did that in Jesus Christ. So we looked at Luke 2 last week. This morning, part two of this story is very simple. Man is sinful. Part one, God's holy. Part two of the Christmas story, man is sinful. Listen, if you miss part one and part two, you don't have Christmas. You have presents, you have eggnog, you have lights on your house, you have all the sorts of stuff we associate with Christmas. But if you miss part one and part two, you don't have Christmas. God is holy and man is sinful. Let me just give you a few thoughts about this part of the story. Man is sinful. Can we just begin by admitting that our culture is uncomfortable with this? Just as a society... We are very uncomfortable with the idea, the notion, the suggestion, the thought that people are sinful. It's not politically correct to call people sinners. If you look at the secular approaches to psychology, psychiatry, sociology, they want to remove the idea of sin from people's thinking. They don't want anything to do with that. Most of the folks in our in our world, although they're not willing to say that they themselves are perfect and they will admit that they are imperfect, they don't want to be slapped with this label sinner. And when you think about calling a person a sinner, that just sounds harsh to us. We've been so conditioned by our society and our culture that for me to look you in the eyeballs like I'm doing right now and to say, you are a sinner, that just sounds abrasive and judgmental, and negative, and it just sends chills up some people's spines. Let me tell you something that the Bible says that makes this even more spine-tingling for some people. Are you ready for this? We are not sinful because we sin. We sin because we're sinful. We're not sinful because we sin. We sin because we're sinful when you get that thought in your brain it will change the way you look at the world and it'll change the way that you read this book bible says that there is a connectedness between us and adam so that we show up on the scene not as a blank slate not as morally neutral creatures not as just innocent sweet lovely people broken sinful We are sinful from birth, the Bible says, and the result is that we do sinful things. How many of you have ever heard of the Ten Commandments? In the Bible, not the movie, okay, most of you. How many of you think they're important? Okay. How many of you could stand up right now on the spot, and I might call on you, could stand up right now on the spot and not quote verbatim Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, but you could get all 10 out in order. How many? One, two, three, four. 
Okay, here we go. Put your book down. Put your pen down. Put your books down. Get your hands out. It's time to go to school. Here we go. Number one, only one God. Number two, cut out idols. Okay, no idols. Number three, say God's name with respect. Okay. Number four, upside down, you got a family, they're walking to church. Keep the Sabbath. You go to church, walk to church. Okay, we've got this. Number five, real sign language this time, honor your father and your mother. Just coincidentally, that works out nice. Honor your father and your mother. Only one God, cut out idols, use God's name with respect, go to church, honor your father and your mother. Number six, kids like this one, don't kill. Easy. Number seven, you got seven fingers up, you got a ground, you got husband and wife, be faithful to your spouse. Number seven, okay? Number eight, like this. You do this thing in some countries and they're going to chop your thumbs off. Don't steal. Number eight, don't take things that don't belong to you. Number nine, you're going to go like this, okay? Five up here, four up here, and you're going to say, I promise this is all I have. But you're lying because you got one hiding right here. Don't lie, number nine. Don't do it, number nine. Number ten, don't want what other people have. Only one God, cut out idols, use God's name with respect, keep the Sabbath holy, honor your father and your mother, do not kill. Number seven, be faithful to your spouse. Number eight, do not steal. Number nine, do not lie. Number ten, do not want things that don't belong to you. There you go. You won't ever forget them again. Now, let's see if you want to applause for this question. How many have you broken? Oh, just groans, no applause. Have you ever made a person, an activity, or a thing more important than God? O for one. And two. O for two. Number three, have you ever gone to church and sang a song without thinking about it? Have you ever dozed off in the middle of a prayer? Or have you ever used God's name as a curse word? Yes, you have done one of those things. Number four, have you ever not gone to church when you could have gone to church? Have you ever gone to church with a bad attitude? Have you never gone to church and not engaged in what was happening at church? Oh, for four. Have you ever done, said, or thought anything that brought disrespect to your parents? Five. Have you ever been so upset with another person, even if you don't know their name and they're driving in the car that just cut you off, have you ever been so upset with another person that you wanted something bad to happen to them? Six. Have you ever wished that you were married to a person you're not married to or, don't answer this, wished that you weren't married to a person that you are married to? Seven. 
Have you ever taken anything that was not yours, a piece of bubble gum from the store, a talent or a gift that God gave you to use for the good of your church, time that is really not yours but is God's that you are called to be a steward of, anything ever, eight. Have you ever said anything that wasn't true or wished you had something that didn't belong to you, nine and ten. So that's the top ten, and we're over. Can I tell you something really strange in our society? We can go through those and I can give you the motions and we can say, okay, yeah, I've done that, done that, done that, done that. Even when we admit our sinfulness, there is something in us that longs, that hopes, that wants to believe that God is going to judge on a curve, on a sliding scale. And maybe you think of the sliding scale something like this. You've got over on the left side, do we have a scale? There it is. You got the worst, and then you got bad, and then you got good, and it's kind of gray in between bad and good. There's a lot of fluidity there. And then you got the best. We hope for something like this. And we hope for something like this because we believe, I'm not going to ask you to admit it because I know you believe it. We believe there are at least a few people further left than we are on that scale. And you know what we all have a tendency to do in our minds because we're human beings and because we long, we really hope that it's going to go down like this right here with God. We have a tendency just naturally, whether you think about it or you don't even realize you're doing it, we put people on this scale, don't we? You're doing it right now. You're thinking, where would I go? You're looking down the row and you're saying, where would that person go? You say, I'm not doing that. Yes, you are. So let's put a few people up here. We do it, so let's just be honest about it, okay? What about, I'll just give you some examples. What about Mr. Billy Graham, okay? Great evangelist of the 20th century, known as America's pastor for a long time. Uh, polls show he's one of the most respected men in the United States of America. We have our nice little sliding scale, and you think about Billy the Graham, and you say, let's put Billy way over there on the right side, there's a little bit of space between that last arrow, right? He's not all the way on that side, but we say he, he goes on the right side of things. What if we put someone up on the, on the sliding scale like Osama bin Laden? You say, hmm, former leader of Al-Qaeda and mastermind of two attacks on the United States of America and responsible for a lot of death and a lot of bad things, I think at least in this country, we're working on this sliding scale, and we say he shouldn't be anywhere close to Billy Graham. We put him way over there on the left. Those are pretty easy for most people to throw up there. What about somebody, though, like Oprah? What do you do with Oprah? Oprah. You look at Oprah and you say, okay, she's successful. She's very, very rich. She's very influential. Um, she made fun of cows one time and cattle farmers and people in my hometown sued her, so they don't like her. But for the most part, you say, she seems nice enough, I guess. And she does have a lot of money and she, you know, she has the schools over in Africa and sometimes she does the thing where if you go to her show, everybody in the audience gets a brand new car. That's a pretty nice thing to do. She just buys everybody there a brand new car. 
So I don't know where you put her. Most of you would say, I don't like her teaching. I don't like the things she believes, but she does seem like a nice enough lady, maybe. So I don't know. I don't know what to do with her. It just, I don't know. Just put her up there somewhere. Okay, so these are, these are where we put people. Let's make it more personal. You want to make it more personal? What about Terry Everett? <laughs> Listen, this is easy, right? Children's minister at Emmanuel. The brain's in the office. There's no denying that. This is what we do. Billy Graham gets bumped. <laughs> Terry Everett, right here. Easy. Easy, easy, easy. Now you want a tricky one? Do you want a tricky one? You know it's coming. Oh, man. What do you do with Mr. Corey and your big fancy sliding scale? You say, on the one hand, on the one hand, he loves Jesus. Okay, so we got that going for him. On the other hand, when it rains, he likes to splash people who have their windows open. I don't know, this is tough. On this side, you say, but he loves our students and he wants them to meet Jesus and he wants them to grow up to follow Jesus. That's a good thing. On the other hand, you say, he loves watching YouTube videos of people falling down. <laughs> you say, I don't know. So where are we going to put him? There you go. Congratulations. You made it further right than Oprah. Barely. <laughs> Barely is right. What about you? There's something inside of all of us for all the joking we do. You just talk to the average person on the street. Listen, you talk to the average person in church right now in Odessa, Texas, sitting in a pew, sitting in a comfy chair like you're in. There is something in them that hopes that God is grading on this sliding scale. And you can see it in moments of crisis that we believe this. It comes out. Somebody passes away and we just we have this impulse to talk about they're such a good person. They were just so nice. They were so good. They were a sinner. And we just have this instinct. Oh, he was the nice he was the nicest. There's something in us that longs for this scale. And we long for it because we really believe we can throw at least a dozen people on the left side of ourselves. Can I tell you that wherever you would put yourself on this sliding scale, it's probably too far to the right. Wherever you think you go, you probably put yourself further to the right than you really belong. Here's a more important question than the sliding scale. And where do you put yourself? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible have to say about sin? Forget the wisdom of the world. What does Scripture say? I'm just going to give you some verses, and we're going to go quick. And so I want you to get your outline out if you want to follow along. What is the truth about sin? Here's the first one. Sin affects everything we do. Everything. Nothing is unstained in this universe by sin and its consequences and its effects. 
Look at what we read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you understand that that is you and me apart from the grace of God? Forget the sliding scale. Scripture says, as God looked at human beings, apart from his grace and his mercy, their wickedness was great. We say, okay, yeah, I know that wickedness is, is great in the earth, but we'd like to think that, that sin can be compartmentalized, that it can be controlled, that it can be kept in one corner of your life. And Genesis 6, 5 says, no, 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 every intention of the thoughts of your heart were only evil continually. You could not have more uh, expressive words, more absolute words. The wickedness was great. All the thoughts and all the intentions were wicked only continually. It could not be more explicit. It affects everything that we do. Number two, somebody said this just a minute ago, sin affects all people. All people. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not a human being alive on the earth, nor has there been outside of Jesus, nor will there be until Jesus comes back, that has any business putting themselves on the right side of that goofy scale. All have sinned. No, we're not all equally sinful in our actions and expression of that, but the same root problem exists in all of us. Genesis 6, 5, you understand, applies to all people. Not just the people we put on the left side of our silly graph. Here's the last idea. What does the Bible have to say about the truth of sin? The sliding scale is worthless. It is of absolutely no value. Forget it. Be done with it. Look what James says in James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. What does our society say when they read James 2.10? That's not fair. I haven't ever robbed a bank. I haven't ever hurt a child. You're telling me I tell one white lie and I'm guilty for all of it? That's not fair. But instinctively, we know it's fair. Because when you watch the murder trial, Brooke and I watched a 48 hours last night for a man who did a horrible thing in murdering somebody, murdering two somebodies. And he didn't do this, but if he had stood before the judge and said, I did do that, but I have never robbed a bank, would that impact his guilt one bit? He's guilty. He's a lawbreaker. We're not talking about human law here. We're talking about God's law. We're not talking about a human judge and jury. We're talking about the judge of all creation. The sliding scale is worthless. What are the consequences of sin? Let me share a couple with you. We're going to move quickly. Number one, first consequence, consequence is alienation. Or you could say separation. Alienation or separation. Look at Isaiah 59.2. It's so clear. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear. The world says, well, no, I'm not perfect, but I love God. And Isaiah says, look, 
pal, you got a problem. Sin is serious. It separates you from God. You are alienated from God. There's no connection between you and God just because you're born and you're alive and you're breathing today. You are alienated from your creator. Second consequence, wrath. Anger. Fury. You pick the word. God is angry with sin. And can I just burst a couple of bubbles and say the notion that God is angry at sin but not the sinner is just not biblical. The Bible doesn't separate them. The Bible says you are the sinner. Remember? You're not sinful because you do bad things. You do bad things because you're sinful. The problem is not the things that you do. The problem is you. God's angry with sin. Look what Paul says in Ephesians. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, not by deed, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. God's angry with sin. That makes people uncomfortable, but it's true. And it should make you uncomfortable. Alienation, wrath, number three, condemnation. Condemnation. This is where God's wrath is applied to somebody's life. Condemnation. Look what Paul says in Galatians 3.10. All who rely on works of the law, or you could just put that in parentheses and say all who are hoping for the bell curve, or the sliding scale, or the arrows on both sides, they're all under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. There's a curse on sinners. There's condemnation from God directed towards sinners. Number four, the consequences of sin. Helplessness. This is a problem you can't fix. This is a situation that we have got ourselves into that we cannot get ourselves out of. You cannot just say, okay, I acknowledge one, two, and three, but now I want to break out the sliding scale and I'm going to plunge ahead to the right. Doesn't work that way. Look what Paul says in Romans 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. It can't. Those who are in the flesh can not please God. That's people who fall into Genesis 6-5. Romans 3-23 says that's all of us. Fall into this category of on our own, in the flesh, apart from God's grace, being unable to please God or to move ourselves further down the sliding scale that we want so much. Last consequence is this, death. Romans 6.23, many of you know this verse, the wages of sin is death. There's lots of problems with the sliding scale. This is the biggest problem with it. We believe, we believe that sin makes us bad. The Bible says it makes us dead. We think sin moves you further to the left on the scale... And the Bible says it drops you off the scale completely. 
we're worried about moral improvement and working our way towards the good side of the scale. And Scripture says the Bible's talking about autopsies and funerals. You're dead spiritually. You will die physically. And apart from God's grace, you're dead eternally, separated from God. These are the consequences for, for sin in Scripture. Just five of them. I could give you many, many more. But here's five big ones. Alienation, wrath, condemnation, helplessness, and death. Now we're ready for the story of Christmas. Look in your Bible at Matthew chapter 1. Because our story is good news. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. The Bible says this, The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Here it is. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Why? Verse 21, because he came to save his people from their sins. That's why Christmas is good news. The story of Christmas is the story of Yahweh coming to save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus literally means. Yahweh saves. It's a fitting name. It's very, very simple to understand. You call him Jesus. Name him Yahweh saves. Why? Because he has come to save his people from their sins. This is the story of Christmas. This is good news. This is really good news. When you look through what we just talked about when we looked at a few verses about sin, and you looked at what the Bible truly has to say about sin, and you look at what, uh, what the consequences for sin truly are in our lives, this is really, really good news. It's worth celebrating. And it's news that we've been sent to tell the world, to tell your kids, and your parents, and your friends, and your neighbors, and your co-workers, and your enemies, and even the Iron P people in China out in the middle of nowhere on the other side of the world. Here's the mistake we make sometimes. We make the mistake of making the story all about Jesus without part one and part two. When we talk about Christmas or when we talk about the good news, we jump straight to Jesus and straight to the cross, and we can't wait to get to that part. Next week, we're going to get there. But before you get there, you got to go through part one, and you got to go through part two. And sometimes we jump right to part three, and we're so excited to tell somebody about part three, talking about Jesus, and we wonder, why are they looking at me like a deer in the headlights? They don't seem to get it. They don't seem to understand why this is good news. They don't seem to put the, the dots together as to why I'm so 
so uh, excited about this? The reason is very, very simple. Most people have no idea that God is holy, that he is holy, 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 and have no clue how that impacts their life and their relationship with God. Secondly, most people in our society have no true biblical understanding of the idea that they are sinful, that they're sinners. They don't really see what the big deal is about Jesus. They don't understand why it's so exciting to you that he would come. They don't understand why it would be worth giving everything they are and everything they have to follow Jesus. What's the big deal? They don't understand part one, and they don't understand part two. But when you put the pieces of the story in place and you say to somebody, listen, God is holy, holy, holy. And you're a sinner. And this is what that means in the Bible. Then you're ready for part three. And then you're ready to come back around to where we started this morning and you're ready to say, listen, Christmas really is about a gift. It's about the greatest gift that anybody's ever given. It's about God giving his son so that a holy God and sinful people could be brought back together into a relationship. I hope that many of you, and I believe that many of you understand that. Some of you may be here this morning and you may be putting the dots together for the first time and you may say, oh, I've heard this stuff about Jesus, but I never understood it in light of part one and part two, in light of God's holiness and my sinfulness. And our prayer for you is that you'd put all those dots together that you would celebrate Christmas with us this year truly for the very first time. Let's pray together. Father, you are a good God. You are a great God. You are the only true God. Father, we believe the Bible when it talks about you in the splendor of your holiness. Father, even though we're conditioned not to, and even though there's something in us that that cringes, we confess this morning that we are sinners. The verses that we have read describe us. Father, help us to understand that the problem is not fundamentally the things that we do. The problem is us. Help us to agree with the Bible when it says that we are broken. Father, when we wrestle with the the biblical truth about sin and all its consequences. Christmas and Easter, the manger and the cross shine all the brighter. We are grateful for your grace and your mercy. We are unworthy for the things that you put in place the very first Christmas when Jesus was born to save us from our sins. Father, and the only response that we have to bring to you today is worship. And so we're going to sing, and we want to do it from our hearts. We want to do it with our minds. We want to engage our spirits. And Father, we pray that you would be honored as we sing together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.